Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And the thing I'm going to be talking about in this episode is the role that um, the press and public opinion had on rising tensions across Europe in the run-up to the First World War. Um, The reason why I want to talk about this is because it's it's a hotly contested question as to whether... um, jingoism in Great Britain or um, nationalism across the continent as expressed by the popular press had a significant impact. Now, as you'll probably be aware, there is a vast body of writing on the causes of the First World War. Um, We've had essentially a century of interpretations and few things have been more hotly contested. Um, The number of competing factors, explanations, theories for this um, unexpected and unwarranted um, catastrophe that, as Eric Hobsbawm uh, points out, destroyed the European civilization of the 19th century and left a, a, a politically, socially and economically fractured continent and world that existed in uh, a century of profound crisis uh, until the fall of the Berlin Wall. The role of the press is important because in the decades before the First World War, rising uh, literacy, living standards and political engagement had seen the public sphere um, develop um, within most European countries uh, dramatically um, and he had seen public engagement in politics and diplomacy um, become profoundly more uh, a major factor in the calculations of uh, statesmen, prime ministers and chancellors, um, ambassadors and diplomats. What the people thought for the first time was a significant issue. Um, The fact that mass populations with the franchise were emerging across Europe and that they were necessary to man the factories, um, serve in the armies and had a far more significant stake uh, in society than ever they had done. Um, This was a kind of, perhaps a historical aberration caused by the Industrial Revolution um, one which um, had not previously been uh, considered um, important uh, in previous epochs. The marginalisation of public opinion is something that uh, was considered to be um, a, a, a given, um, but in an age of the, the beginnings of uh, mass democracy, 
and of mass uh, working class life in towns and cities. Um, this was the age of popular imperialism as well. Uh, and as the name suggests, uh, particularly in Great Britain, uh, it was a period of time where ordinary people uh, seemed to have uh, an emotional and ideological connection to imperialism in a way that they previously hadn't done. Empire had existed for a significant, uh, significant amount of time, uh, first in uh, for England and then for Great Britain. And there had been uh, engagement with uh, empire, there had been people travelling to the empire and from it, serving out there, trading, fighting, all the works uh, from the different echelons in society uh, for, you know, since the 16th century. Uh, but only in the 19th century do we really see um, not just thousands or hundreds of thousands, but millions of uh, working class Britons believe that the empire really meant something quite profound to them. And not just, in fairness, not just the working classes either, it was a, a middle class obsession too. Often these were people that would never travel to the empire, nor meet imper um, uh, imperial subjects, people from Asia or Africa. Um, uh, but they were people who read about it. And the rise in literacy here seems to be the significant factor. Uh, mass popular imperialism uh, combined with the development of European racial thinking and, and popular racist ideas uh, about superiority and the fact that uh, large numbers of imperial possessions meant that one European power was not only um, the superior civilizing f um, force in those countries but also it meant that they were superior to their European neighbours. Anyway, the, the text I'm looking at at the moment is The Sleepwalkers by Christopher Clarke. Now, if you're looking for a title on the causes of the First World War, and as I said, there's a, a heck of a lot to wade through. Uh, some of it has been largely debunked now. Some of it has been seen as being a bit old hat. Get The Sleepwalkers. It really is a, a first-rate book. Um, an absolute tour de force. and has some very interesting things to say about the Balkans, but I'll talk about that another time. The German Chancellor Bernhard von Bülow said most of the conflicts the world has seen in the past ten decades have not been called forth by princely ambition or ministerial conspiracy but through the passionate agitation of public opinion which through the press and parliament has swept along the executive. So here Bülow, uh, German Chancellor in 1909, was saying that uh, the executive chancellors prime ministers, presidents, were often the hostage of popular opinion. Um, often they had to go with whatever, whatever tide of popular opinion was on the cards. Now that automatically seems like something of a simplification, and very often politicians do make these sorts of generalisations. But in Germany particularly, from the Bismarckian era onwards, um, an array of uh, pressure groups and interest groups emerged, um, taking ordinary, uh, normally apolitical, or um, at least people who are not particularly interested in foreign affairs, directly to the heart of policy making, um, channeling popular passions uh, into the heart of government. Bismarck, for example, was not 
particularly interested in uh, adventuring in Africa and development, um, uh, acquiring African colonies. But by 1884, he's had to change his tune because he knows that he cannot resist the tide of uh, popular imperialism. Richard J. Evans uh, suggests that uh, in his book, The Coming of the Third Reich, when speaking about Bismarck, that the uh, generation of young Germans who had been perhaps too young for the wars of unification um, and yet were sort of really infused with uh, nationalist passions as a result of the unification of Germany, they are the ones who um, see um, the uh, colonies as they kind of the, the next step in the development of, of German greatness and, and thus the, the, the desire for colonisation. In Italy... Enrico Corradini, uh, the nationalist politician, and Giovanni Papini uh, established the first nationalist party, the Associazione Nationalista Italiana, um, in 1910. And the, uh, the party uh, ran a newspaper, L'Ideal Nazionale, the, the national ideal, uh, or the idea of the nation. Um, and it demanded uh, repatriation of uh, Italian territories along the Adriatic coast and the, um, and the uh, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the, the famous or infamous Irredentalands that after the First World War, the Italian uh, fascist Gabriele D'Annunzio uh, claimed. These were the territories that Italians felt cheated out of at uh, the uh, Paris Peace Conference when the Treaty of Versailles was being signed uh, as they were given to the new state of Yugoslavia. And uh, La Dia Nacional seems to be able to pull um, centre-ground newspapers in a more nationalist direction. Uh, the uh, La Tribuna in Rome and La Stampa in Turin um, began to take on nationalist journalists and start to uh, write specifically nationalist articles, knowing that these things sell. You have to remember that newspaper editors and newspaper proprietors were interested in commercial returns, uh, what was going to sell. Um, Russia saw a, a, a huge spike in nationalist sentiment um, on the, uh, in the, the half decade before the First World War. In his book, A People's Tragedy, Orlando Figes uh, suggests that the establishment of the Duma in 1905 uh, which was quickly undermined by Tsar Nicholas II, using uh, eventually Prime Minister Peter Stolypin, um, was part of the, the this process that um, the left-leaning Duma uh, that was uh, undermined and the voting system reordered um, was uh, replaced with a right-leaning Duma full of um, aristocratic nationalists who were far more uh, warlike than the Tsar, far more gung-ho than the Tsar, and able to drag discourse in a profoundly anti-German direction uh, before the outbreak of the First World War. So much so that it's possible to speculate, and I think Orlando Fine just does, um, that um, there might possibly have been a coup against the Tsar had he backed out of a war against Germany. And again, in Russia, growing literacy and an urban proletariat meant that there was much more appetite for the printed word. Um, printed uh, newspapers uh, that sold for a kopeck to the workers on the way home from factories uh, were huge business, as was the Rosko Slovo, 
um, which was the best-selling paper, a daily paper in Moscow, uh, which sold 800,000 copies a day, uh, which, considering the times, is uh, staggering numbers. The governments across Europe, obviously, um, operated different degrees of press censorship. But it's the Balkans where the Russian public opinion becomes uh, more combative, more assertive, uh, particularly after the humiliations that Russia uh, receives over the Balkans at the Congress of uh, Berlin in 1878 and over the Bosnian crisis in 1908. Um, Russia, um, there is a a popular belief that a third humiliation, uh, one which transpires in potentially with transpires in 1914, uh, Russia cannot back down or back away from. Now, in a way, what we are looking at here is the the complicated relationship, and Benedict Anderson, in his book, uh, Imagine Communities, talks about it well, between um, rising literacy, uh, growth in printing, and the development of these imagined communities, nations, uh, that uh, the population begins uh, in a very profound and deep way to be able to participate in the creation of. And once this is established, that um, people, through their uh, allegiances, their views, their passions and their beliefs and their sense of nationhood and national identity, that they have a stake in the nation, um, uh, then the ability to fully guide policy, uh, the ability to orchestrate policy uh, at a a kind of an international diplomatic level, the way in which Bismarck rather liked to hope he could do things, um, that becomes seriously compromised uh, because the angry populations of Europe who feel uh, by turn um, embittered, threatened, uh, jealous, envious, uh, proud, well, particularly negative emotional states, they have a, a huge force in uh, shaping policy to make sure that these uh, emotional needs are met. The question as to whether newspapers reflected or shaped this agenda is perhaps a bit of um, a red herring. Uh, invariably, newspapers will say the kinds of things they believe that their readerships already think. However, the extent to which this um, amplifies and reinforces simple messages such as um, threat from another power or uh, a feeling of having been transgressed against um, is a, a matter for great debate. Christopher Clark writes, In Britain too, a burgeoning mass press fed its readers on a rich diet jingoism, xenophobia, security scares and war fever. During the Boer War, the Daily Mail sold 1 million copies per day and in 1907 it was still averaging between 850,000 and 900,000 copies. And on the, in the a half decade before the war in Great Britain, uh, once again a rich culture of suspicion and paranoia emerged particularly based around um, the threat of Germany and the naval race that the two powers were engaged in. 
Though in fact the most um, significant book of the the spy genre um, that do, um, was published was actually published in 1903, and it's uh, the Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers, uh, which was made into a film, and I think it's with Michael York in, in 1979, um, which is a, a story of um, Englishmen on holiday in sailing around uh, Jutland and Heligoland and finding a terrible conspiracy for the Germans to uh, invade uh, Norfolk uh, with uh, German soldiers in barges. So uh, significant was the impact of this story that um, apocryphally it was one of the um, uh, one, one of the factors that um, caused Parliament to uh, demand uh, an intelligence service or counterintelligence service in the guise of the Secret Service Bureau that was set up in 1909 and then divided into uh, two divisions, MI5 and MI6, um, which really don't become you know major uh, organs of um, state power until quite significantly later, so very uh, small amateur hour organisations uh, initially. Uh, but it goes to show that the um, novels like The Riddle of the Sands and later the various uh, John Buchan uh, stories, um, such as the, the 39 Steps, these have a powerful hold over popular imagination and they, they guide the thoughts of um, not just... Uh, the, uh, the the bulk of the population but also parliamentarians and decision makers um, and the reason why that is so is because there are these profound anxieties there uh, about the future of the nation and these profound anxieties are fueled by popular uh, by the popular press uh, and also they help to provide the popular press with materials they exist in this kind of self-reinforcing loop now, as we know, and I've uh, done a podcast on this previously, uh, the 20th century uh, was the era of the of, of media power, um, and 21st century is turning out to be no different. It is the it was the era um, initially of the press baron, and politicians and royalty were wise to be wary of them. They all of a sudden uh, press barons uh, were. Uh, able to bring to the uh, the table whole electorates if necessary, and they could also turn whole electorates and whole populations against the government of the day if they so felt minded to do so. Um, these are this is what um, Stanley Baldwin referred to as power without responsibility, and European leaders were acutely aware of this. Supposedly, Wilhelm II spent hours every day poring over press cuttings, uh, an extremely um, e- easily bruised ego, um, and very uh, vulnerable to the vicissitudes of the press. But even Alexander III, you know, a, a far more seemingly far more robust figure. Uh, was insightful enough to say to his foreign minister Lambsdorff um, that if we lose the confidence of public opinion in our foreign policy, then all is lost. And this is from a a figure who doesn't have to fight uh, elections, doesn't have to even consider 
very much democratic legitimacy at all. And um, he's still acutely aware that the, that the public are deeply involved now in foreign policy and there's no removing them from that and they must remain confident. Um, the you know, Russia is, from 1861, probably through to 1928, uh, going through a revolutionary period. Uh, Alexander had been subject to a number of assassination attempts and one had been successful on his dad. So there was, he was entirely mindful of the threats that the population posed to the autocracy. And as if to underline that point, when Nicholas II loses a war against Japan, he actually does face mass uprising from the population. Being wary of the press was also um, a, an, import, a, an important preoccupation for ministers who weren't seen as robust enough in their foreign policy. Um, French ministers who seemed to be a bit too keen to placate Germany or a bit too eager for reconciliation, uh, who didn't um, live and breathe revanche, um, were so easy targets for columnists to attack. And so perhaps one explanation for the increasing secrecy of international relations throughout this period was that the public needed to be excluded or in the eyes of governments anyway, the public needed to be excluded from the decision-making process. So the less they knew, so much the better. But of course, one thing that political establishments do is they are very easy, very able to easily absorb challenges um, to incorporate the uh, things like the press into uh, the system uh, and to, to use it to their own ends. They were aware the public opinion and the press that was articulated it could be extremely volatile, um, that it had something of a short-term memory, um, and that these uh, upsets and angers and resentments quickly subsided if they could be managed and, and allowed to uh, dissipate. Um, and they knew that public sentiment was often incoherent, that it demanded contradictory things, that it was ill-informed, uh, and that it could be um, diffused uh, by uh, skillful policy. One example of how public opinion was so changeable was during the uh, Agadir crisis in 1911, the second attempt by the Kaiser to meddle in France's uh, affairs in Morocco. Uh, in September 1911, there had been a peace demonstration in, De in Berlin, attracting 100,000 people. But a few weeks later, the mood had changed, and the Social Democrats, the largest party in the country, um, had stepped back from a traditional uh, pledge that they had made to cause a general strike in the event of war. Um, actually uh, rejecting that demand and pushing themselves, the largest party in Germany, to a slightly more pro-war footing, which again reflected the attitudes of large numbers of the population um, that had clearly shifted to uh, being more sympathetic to conflict. Prior to the First World War, 
the the real uh, extremists, the what you would call proto-fascist uh, groups of extreme nationalists, imperialists, anti-Semites, um, irredentists, and that kind of thing, are a, a real uh, fringe. Um, they are uh, at the margins of uh, politics in Britain, France, Germany, Austria, uh, and other combatant countries. Um, and so they, there is not much evidence that before 1914 that um, a, a fascism itself um, is, is de- developing in any, any meaningful sense. Um, there are all the ingredients of um, you know, modernism, romanticism, um, racial thinking, um, militarism, imperialism, all there. But it takes really the crisis of war and the, um, you know, the mutilated peace, as Gabrielle D'Annunzio put it, to really create the conditions for uh, new political movements to emerge. So in concluding, I'd say that there is significant uh, evidence that the press exerted uh, a power over politicians and their decision-making in the run-up to the, sec- the First World War. But the question as to why that is more important um, is because uh, new mass readerships had developed from uh, working and middle-class um, populations across Europe who were the product of the Industrial Revolution, of rising living standards, longer life expectancy, growing literacy, um, growing leisure time, uh, and the ability to engage in things other than the day-to-day survival. Not that life was particularly comfortable for most of the people in question, but significantly more than it would have been for their parents or their grandparents' generation. So there, there is a, um, a historical opportunity for large numbers of people to become engaged with and to identify with national politics and to see the business of empire as something intimately connected to them. Um, and this is really part of this kind of curious process of the, the development of of nations and of national identity and identification and the ability that human beings have to associate their interest with the interest of the greater tribe and to project their identity onto that in order to make sense of themselves Um, and thus um, to be uh, excited and enthusiastic in large numbers when the first shots are fired uh, in and the war is declared in 1914. Anyway, I hope you found that useful. You can do me a huge, huge, huge favour if you've enjoyed this. Please find us on iTunes, um, give us a review, five stars if you can. If you want to get Christopher Clark's Sleepwalkers available in all good bookshops, though make sure that you really do hit those good bookshops and support them because those guys need those guys need your business big time. Anyway, thanks very much and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Bye bye. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.